Yeah, if you guys have your Bibles, uh, you could turn to Psalm 119, and we're going to be, we're going to read the whole chapter. No, I'm just kidding. It's the, literally the longest chapter in the Bible. Um, but specifically verses uh, like uh, 9 through 16. So we're going to stay in there uh, for the teaching today. Um, today we wrap up our five-week series on the art of abiding, uh, and we're honing in uh, on the art of the spiritual discipline of scripture meditation. Uh, so we have based this entire series over the past five weeks uh, on the words of Jesus in John fifteen four: remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Throughout this series, we've discussed seeking, seeking Jesus in secrecy as we listen to his, uh, as Dan uh, spoke from his message in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and Matthew 6, we, uh, we talked about the necessity of silence and solitude in our regular rhythms in life, practicing and holding the Sabbath, which we all do. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's so tough. And the urgency and uh, power of prayer, as Tanika led us last week into. Uh, these, including today's topic of scripture meditation, are our guidepost to abiding in Christ. We look at these practices not as the end, but as a means to the end. And here's what I mean. As we practice silence and solitude, we calm our thoughts and we commit our attention to Jesus. We don't look to the art or discipline of silence and solitude as the end goal. We look to abiding as our end goal. So think about this, like professional athletes uh, train year-round for whatever sport they play. How many professional athletes do we have here? Oh, wow, we got, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I didn't expect that. Jeez. Um, but the goal is to become the best version of whatever particular sport that you all play, I guess. Uh, <laughs> a basketball player, for instance, will train in the offseason. If they want to ultimately improve their game, there are certain non-basketball workouts that need to be done in order to improve. They may lift weights. They work on their body control, enhance mobility, work on their mental sharpness. However, these disciplines put in place are not the ultimate goal of the basketball player. They're not aiming to become an Olympic lifter, be a yoga instructor, or become a licensed therapist. They implement these practices for the ultimate goal of becoming a great basketball player. Similarly, but not exactly, the disciplines that we have discussed for the past five weeks are just this, disciplines that will help us abide in Christ. We do not aim to consistently pray, keep the Sabbath, and meditate on Scripture as the end goal. Rather, these disciplines give us the right conditions to fully abide. Richard Foster notes, who I'm going to be quoting a lot, uh, and I highly, highly recommend reading his book, uh, Richard Foster, The Celebration of Discipline. Um, a lot of this teaching, a lot of the last five weeks have come from uh, his writing. And it's really, really powerful, really practical, applicable things. Richard Foster notes, a farmer is helpless to grow grain. All he can do is provide the right conditions. And like Paul points out uh, to the church in Corinth regarding his own ministry, I planted the seed, Apollo watered it, but God has been making it grow. We we, we put these practices in place, not that we're manipulating this in some form or fashion, like, God, I've been praying so hard, and I've been abiding, or I've been in silence. I'm so silent, God. Please hear my prayer. It's, it's we are putting these together so that 
we can abide in Christ. And we need and get to enjoy the nourishment of the vine as we discipline ourselves to provide the right conditions for abiding in Jesus. So as we conclude this series on the art of abiding, let's have this in mind. We are to seek Jesus in times of secrecy. We are to embrace solitude, practice Sabbath, earnestly pray, and seek the truth of his scriptures so that we provide the right conditions in our life for abiding in Jesus as the branch depends on the vine. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit will move right now, God. I pray that as we go through this text and as we go uh, and uh, meditate on your word, um, Father, that you will just move in our hearts, God, that this is not just a message that falls on our ears and we forget about it today, Father, but I pray that it is ingrained into our heart. God, allow our spirits to calm, our minds to be at ease as we focus on your word. Father, we love you and we thank you and we praise your name. Amen. Amen. Real quick, I'm just going to reread the text for today. Again, it's Psalm 119, 9 through 16. If you're there, it's all good. If not, just listen to my words. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? What an opening question for this text. By living according to your word, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes. As one rejoices in great riches, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Uh, we are Bible people here at Neighbors Church. We read the Bible, we carefully study, and we meditate while aiming to live according to the sacred text. Neighbors Church simply is a Bible church. Every Sunday we begin our gathering with the reading of the text that we are going to be discussing for the day. We do this as a starting place of worship. We are recognizing that before singing, before teaching, before communion, we recognize and submit to the very word of God. One of my first classes that I took in seminary, actually one of two, to be really honest with you, uh, was with this guy named Dr. Tony Barron. Uh, and if any of you have aspirations for seminary and want to go to Azusa, I don't know if he's there anymore, but he is one of the greatest professors that I've ever had. Uh, there may not be a smarter, sweeter, and more caring professor on planet Earth. I, I only had one class with him, uh, and he was deeply, deeply profound, but he loved people super deep as well. Uh, in class one day, he asked us to construct what we believe would be the best flow of a Sunday gathering. I remember that all the groups had, you know, different variations of what we thought would be best, uh, and they would range from, you know, when you put in passing of the peace, scripture reading, communion, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it came to what we called worship, and what we commonly refer to as worship, Dr. Barron would lovingly yet sternly interject and say, oh, you mean the singing portion? And uh, for quite some time, I mean, not for quite some time, but for a couple minutes after that, we're like, what do you mean the singing portion? But what he was implying was that the whole gathering in and of itself is an act of worship, not just the singing portion. It may just be semantics, uh, but this understanding of passing of the peace, tithe, communion, and the reading of scripture as worship was deeply profound to me. Scripture meditation is an act of worship, the beginning act of worship. 
As John points out in the beginning of his gospel, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Bible is a written Word, so we must read it. We must study it, and we must meditate on it. The Bible is made up of 66 books ranging from narrative, poetry, prophetic literature, history, there's tragedy, there's triumph, there's stories of love, failed relationships, betrayal, death, life. It has everything that all leads to the coming of Jesus. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus, whether we are in Leviticus reading about these laws that we don't understand or, John, or in John hearing Jesus's words, it is about his, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The Bible is a very complex book to read. But as followers of Christ, we must study and meditate on the Bible to learn about Jesus. Could you imagine, imagine with me, if after marriage, a husband and a wife did not talk for six out of the seven days of the week, but grew extremely frustrated in their relationship as they slowly drifted apart. They would most likely say that they don't know each other, they don't really care for each other, but that one day gives them just enough fuel to keep on going. And I think this is how we experience at times our relationship with the Bible. We may grow frustrated with ourselves because we haven't read in so long, and then we sit down for a 20-minute session of reading where we remember the beauty of God's promises and we feel motivated to keep this rhythm up, but then the next day, there's the Western Conference Finals. And you have to see the Suns knock out the Clippers. Am I right? Amen? No? Sports? Nah, sports. Um, <laughs> we must discipline ourselves to study and meditate on the Bible. Not out of mere obligation or to some type of like level up, but we must discipline ourselves because it is our salvation, it is our lifeline, it is actually our delight. Like the psalmist says that, that, of the text we're going to be reading today, uh, in, in Psalm 119, 103, he says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So this is where we begin, studying and meditating on God's word. First, I, I want to make a quick note that there is actually a difference between studying and meditating. Again, Richard Foster notes uh, that meditation is devotional. Study is analytical. Meditation will relish a word. Study will explicate it. In other words, we study to realize what the meaning is. You guys have all taken some type of, we've all taken some type of class, albeit in high school, college. And when you study, you, you aim to understand. We should aim to understand it. With whatever material we're reading, we do not want to passively read, especially God's word. So we break down what the message that the author is trying to convey to understand it. This takes a little bit of work, but our understanding of this text is vital to our meditation. Meditation allows us to take the knowledge that we have learned and put it into our very being. It allows, it allows us to be transformed and renewed. Let's consider the words of Jesus as he spoke to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Men who, who, who has studied the law more intently than most. If you hold, this is in John 8, 32, if you're taking notes, you can make a quick reference there. Don't, don't flip your Bibles there, but just go back. Um, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Again, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, 
not just understand, not just know, not just study intently, but you hold to it. The study of scripture is greatly important. We must, we must analyze it and study it in its context so we can formulate an idea about it. And once that idea is formed, we meditate, we sit in it, we let it come into our very being. Study provides a certain objective framework so that meditation can properly, can successfully function. Meditation apart from study can actually be really frustrating for us. We could lose our vigor for the Bible because we don't really understand it. We're reading through this book and all these different forms of writing and we're like, I don't get it. I don't understand how this connects with this. When the hype or the desire of meditation fade, we become victims of that and we just stop reading. How many guys have ever been there? Oh, wow, we got some super spiritual people in here, okay? On the other hand, pure study without meditation and introspection could breed arrogance. We study, we understand it, but we completely miss the message of the Bible, and this could be very tragic. In today's passage, we observe the psalmist who demonstrates a life of meditation predicated on the understanding of God's word. Specifically, we'll observe three ways that will help us abide in Christ through scripture meditation. First, simply, we meditate in scripture. We delight in scripture and we rejoice in scripture. So we're going to get into that from today's text. But first, let's set up the context of where we're at in Psalm 119. Um, So many scholars believe that the psalmist himself is the young person who poses this question to open up in verse nine. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? This places an emphasis that the psalmist's goal is not to instruct or to teach as someone who is openly confessing, but he is, sorry, excuse me, he is someone who is openly confessing to this question that he's exploring. So for instance, we read in Romans and Paul's instruction, that is he's instructing the church in Rome and uh, it's, it's just filled with all this theological depth uh, and teaching, in a teaching mode. But here in Psalm 119, we witness, and we're gonna go through a quick survey here, we witness the psalmist who is just like in it. He is in it and he's asking all of these questions and he's making all of these, um, he's saying all these statements almost as like this, this kind of plea, this kind of like longing to be, with, to be with God in his scripture. This leads to public confession of the state that he is in and what he is experiencing in life. Again, let's do a quick survey of what I mean. In verse 22 and 23, he says, remove from me the scorn and contempt for I keep your statutes. Though rulers sit and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. And again, in verse 25 and 28 through 29, I am laid down in the dust Preserve my life according to your word. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me and teach me your laws. Derek Kinder notes, the attacks on the psalmist are taking the form of derision and slander. He is sensitive to scorn. His isolation makes him low-spirited, small and despised, drained of vitality and dried up. And some of us may be experiencing this now as we're sitting in the chairs. We deeply connect with the psalmist in his state of despair. Many of us here have broken relationships and the pain that comes from that is truly unbearable. 
We are burnt out by the constant tension that we were in culturally. The information that we are fed daily is destroying our souls and making us doubt what is true and what's false. Maybe we just have everyday stressors that weigh on us and it feels like no relief is ever going to come as we are in this constant cycle. But we can learn from the psalmist how we as followers of the Bible can hold more tightly to the truth of his word. Even though he is in this state, he somehow holds tighter, not looser to God's word. The psalmist is desperately abiding in the vine for sustenance and hope. He is displaying to us as readers that he is in great anguish, but the word of the Lord sustains him. So this brings us to our first point. We must meditate on scripture. Again, in verse 15, he says, I meditate on your precepts and consider your, way, your ways. The word meditate in this verse can often be translated uh, to many different words, but the word that I wanted to hone in on was muse. Uh, in our English lexicon, to muse on something is to become absorbed with this thought. It is a deep thought of reflection on what we are focused on. So again, Richard Foster notes, remember the mind will always take on an order conforming to the order upon which it concentrates. So what are our thoughts becoming absorbed with on a daily basis? Let's just sit in that for a second. What do we think about? What is our, how is our time spent? If we were to take our 24 hours in the day, what's the majority of that chunk? Is it our jobs? Is it our failures, our inadequacies, our success, our greatness? what we don't have, what we hope to have one day? How do we get there? Maybe through an influence that we are not aware of, but constantly ruminating on. I really hate to bring it up because I feel like I do a lot, but I do believe that we don't fully understand the implications of constantly being tethered to our mobile devices. And I say this personally as well. This is a, a confession. They're like little information gadgets that we typically make calls on in text, like occasionally. Um, and we are constantly being drip-fed information that goes unchecked, whether it be Instagram, Fox News, CNN, CNBC, or the made-up news outlets on our Apple News feed. Like, you know, a little pop sugar? Like, that was like weird. It's like, what? Is that even legit writing? Uh, but we love it, right? We need it. We need to know the stats from the game, confession. We need to know the latest fashion trends right now. We need to know what's going on in the G7 summit, which I don't even know what that is. We need to know what Biden said. We need to know what Trump said, which album Taylor Swift just re-recorded. Like, we need to know, which is kind of dope, right? I don't know, any T-Swift fans or not, but anyways. But we fill our moments of silence with a quick trip to Instagram or an update on the news that leaves us empty after countless minutes of scrolling. We abide more in these mobile devices than we do in scripture. We are inadvertently musing on these things that are drawing us further and further from our true vine, and we don't, guys, we don't even recognize it. It is, it goes, it is just crazy. The word precepts is derived from an instruction that is drawn from like the sphere of an overseer, some type of leader of a, of a large group. Um, Kinder notes a little bit more specifically that uh, someone who writes a precept is a man who is responsible to look closely into a situation and take action. So in other words, it's someone who commands something or institutes a mandate. 
not merely to exhibit power, but to offer protection and guidance. The psalmist is meditating on the Lord's instruction and guidance and is actually longing for it. He is longing for this intimate direction from a king who is going to sustain him in every circumstance. How many of us here naturally long to follow directions from someone? Yes, wow, we got three people. I put my hand down. Like you wake up in the morning and you say, I can't wait to follow a set of rules today. <laughs> Think about all the rules that you broke just driving to church today. There is no way, there's absolutely no way that you did a proper stop at all 96 stop signs here in South Park. There's seriously so many stop signs and there's so many coffee shops. I don't, it's just, I love, I love South Park. Gonna miss it. Um, but I was in the Navy, uh, actually, if, if you guys didn't know that. Uh, and about 50% of the reason I got out after four years was because of what I believed was all of my overseer's lack of creative intelligence. Uh, I would grow very, fr how many people here are in the military? Actually, Oh, Hank, my father-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't my overseer. I just want to, I just want to say that. Um, cause he has a lot of creative intelligence. Um, but I would grow very frustrated when I was so convinced that my way had to be a hundred more times efficient than what they were telling me. Seriously. But they didn't listen. How dare they? But somehow, some way, the Navy is still intact. <laughs> Even without taking my advice. And I, I'm pretty sure we were successful in our operations. If you want to hear about a cool one, hit me up after service. And I got you. I got a cool story. I can't say it over the mic. Um, but this is a more sacrificial way of living that we're honestly not accustomed to. In fact, our culture would preach that we should do what makes you happy, right? That's our, that's our thing. That's our motto. Do what makes you happy. In a recent Vogue interview, Billie Eilish, uh, who has 83 million followers on Instagram, said, my thing is, I can do whatever I want. We may hear that and we might have one of two responses, either an emphatic yes or yes, more commonly, uh, or, we, or an emphatic, what a selfish way to live your life, right? We as these good Christians, we would say this, these good followers of Christ. But if we are the latter, we probably need to reflect that although we outwardly do not agree with our, with our words, could we agree by the way that we live? because we need structure, we need guidance and protection. I couldn't imagine, I really couldn't imagine letting my kids, my wonderful kids, do what made them happy all the time. My son Titus would literally have zero teeth because he would have already eaten his 111th orange for the day. Tatum would have people over to our house every single night and order pizza seven days a week. And then Tegan right now would be running up and down the street trying to find any dog in any of these neighborhoods so that she can pet them or just wave to them. That's what she does. But it's interesting because as infants and toddlers, we all agree, we all agree that structure and guidance is necessary for human flourishing. But this does not stop once we are over the age of 18. We need guidance. Otherwise, we go astray and follow our rules that lead to destruction. We do not get there by just reading the Bible, but by meditating and understanding God how God is looking to guide us. As Paul writes to Timothy regarding Scripture, all Scripture is inspired 
by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We come to meditate on scripture to be changed and guided so that like the psalmist, we are longing and meditating on his protection, on his protecting guidance. And secondly, we delight in scripture. This is verse 16. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I find great, great, I find great pleasure in your instruction. He was not simply a person who was dedicated to reading scripture as a routine. This isn't a part, this isn't a tone of the passage. It wasn't like, God, I've been reading your precepts uh, every single day, so it'd be cool maybe right now if you can honor my continued obedience. Like, that wasn't the tone of this passage. Kinder again notes, the singer is no legalist, content with a round of duties. He will press for nothing short of God's vitalizing touch. Otherwise, his religion, he knows, will be dead. I believe it is really important to understand that he is delighting in God's law in the midst of his own personal torment. This is a real person. This is a real person experiencing real emotions and real tragedy like all of us do. He's being, remember, he's being ambushed by rulers. His soul is weary. He can barely stand on his own two feet, yet he somehow delights in God's instruction. If nothing else is retained from the Sunday gathering, I pray that this image of the psalmist delighting in God's word while being at the lowest point resonates with all of us deeply. And this is the crux of the message that we delight in the word. In the face of all of our circumstances, we are bound to Jesus, the vine and giver of life. I, I really can't talk about delighting in God's word without a quote from John Piper. Satan would be happy for people to believe 10,000 true facts as long as they are blind to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Let them make A's on 100 Bible fact quizzes as long as they can't see the glory of Christ in the gospel. That is, as long as they can't read or listen with the ability to see what is really there. Satan would be very content if we were to read our Bible, study it, know it backwards and forwards, understand its context, but we go out and live a life that's unchanged. He would actually be stoked on that. Because delighting takes on a different form when the text is studied and meditated on. Delight allows us to never lose sight that the vine that we are so closely tethered to is constantly giving us life. No matter the conditions around us, we can still delight. So meditating on scripture and delight leads us to our final, our last and final point, to rejoice in scripture. I rejoice, again, in, in verse 14, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. What does it look like to rejoice in statutes? Let's first take a look at the word statute in order to realize its relevance to what the author is, to the author's rejoicing. Statutes speak of the binding force and permanence of scripture of laws engraved or inscribed. He is rejoicing in the unshaking stability and permanence of the law. That will not change, but will be fulfilled with the coming Messiah. And it will remain engraved or inscribed to him now from eternity. And I'm going to touch on the coming Messiah part. You're like, how does he know that? Well, we're going to get there. 
In his famed classic, and this is another phenomenal read, Confessions, St. Augustine of Hippo beautifully pens the sentiment. I will love you, Master, and give thanks and testimony to your name, since you pardon me from such terrible wrongdoings, from such unspeakable things that were my work. <laughs> to, to your grace I give the credit, and to your mercy that you melted my sins like ice. And to your grace I impute it that I didn't do other evil things, whatever they would have been. We, like the psalmist, rejoice in God's law because it reminds us that the revelation of sin is not simply for interest, but for God's grace to reign in our lives. God's, God delivered this written law to guide and protect the Israelites from the trapping of sin, to put in place a path for salvation through faith. To believe and trust in the law requires faith. Again, the psalmist did not have the person of Jesus to look to as a figure of worship like we do. Instead, he studied and meditated on the laws with the understanding of a Savior that will come, that will come to save us all. He writes in Psalm 119, 38, fulfill your promise to your servant that you may be feared. What servant is he talking about? The promise that he is, that he is alluding to is that of God speaking to David through Nathan in 2 Samuel. And again, here's the text. As Nathan is prophesying and speaking into, uh, into David's life, he says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house in my name and I will establish the kingdom of his throne forever. He realizes that this law that he so desperately longs for and rejoices in will one day find fulfillment in this offspring that will come from the ancestry of David. The psalmist doesn't know when or how, but he pleads with God to fulfill the promise of a coming Savior. Yet we have the full story, but rejoice in so many other things that pale in comparison to God's grace in his son, Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of St. Paul as he pleads with the Romans to offer themselves to God. He says, do not offer, this is Romans 6, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death. We've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin can no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. This reminds me of someone who, when I was, uh, when I was at the Rock Church and I brought, uh, one of our youth leaders brought his buddy to church and he was like reading, uh, he was reading the lyrics as we were worshiping and he was like, wow, if you guys really believe this, this should dramatically change you. Like if you, I don't believe, he was saying, I don't believe this, but if you guys do, this grace that you believe in, this is, this is transforming. And as followers of Christ, this is what we rejoice in. We're saved, like the psalmist, not only from the anguish of this world, but we are saved from eternal separation from the vine that offers eternal life from now until eternity. We are currently in that. We meditate on scripture. We delight in its ways and rejoice in its implications. Neighbors, may we become a people who love to read the Bible 
not out of obligation or duty or to gain information, but out of a longing, a deep longing and a deep desire to abide. Father, I pray right now that your spirit will move in us. God, that you will give us a desire to abide. God, you will give us a desire to worship you. God, that we like the psalmist will understand that this life is difficult. This life is tough. We're going to make fail. We are going to fail. Father, but if we are tethered to this vine and if we are constantly reminded by way of these disciplines that we implement that you are nourishing us, God. Father, I pray that that will be on the forefront of our minds. God, that that will be ingrained into our every, everyday daily habits so that we can see your beauty and your grace, Father. God, I just love you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have a Savior who has walked in our, in our, walked in a path similar and was perfect, who didn't sin, but yet you empathize with us. So God, I pray right now that you will cement this in our hearts, that we will meditate and study and meditate again and again on your word. And I just thank you. Praise your name. Amen.